0: That is a holy nation, that's what we're called to be. Not some sort of activism to call the fallen structures of this world to perform justly. I mean, that's fine if we can do it, but how about we demonstrate justice from within? As we proclaim the gospel, as we begin to lift up the the poor and the downtrodden, as the master who has the gift of service serves the slave who has the gift of leadership,
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover what's good and beautiful about the gospel. And we're in a series called Recovering Faith, and this is episode 11. 11. And I'm going to give us a recap. In our series so far, we've covered saved from from what, and we've covered saved how, and today we're going to dive into saved for what. But I'm going to give us a recap on saved from what and saved how. Please do. Summarize. Yes. In saved from what, uh, we focused on, uh, well, in contrast to focusing on being saved from a future metaphysical hell. We argued instead that the Bible's emphasis is that the gospel saves us now from the hells of our social
2: breakdown and our personal breakdown. Yeah, I think, and I think that's important, of thinking about kind of the typical evangelical background where maybe a lot of us have always heard, well, you need to you know, accept Jesus into your heart. Um, yeah, you'll have a relationship with him, but the, you know, the emphasis is on um, you not go to going hell. to hell when, when you, you die, die, which nobody wants that, you know, um, but then there's this sense of, well, what are we going to do until we die?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so
2: we outline that
1: as the gospel saves us now out of a corrupt society. Point one, Mm -hmm. it saves us from the elemental principles of the world of authority and conformity. And we can live free from being controlled by authority and conformity. And we can live free from ruling over others and manipulating others because of the gospel. And we spelled that out, how the life of faith frees us from a corrupt society. Also, the gospel saves us from the corruption that's inside of us, not just the corruption outside of us, but also the corruption inside of us. And that's the laws of sin and death operating in our bodies, keeping us from doing the good that we want to do.
2: Mm-hmm. So we've worked on that. Yeah, and I, I, once again, I think I think that's helpful to make that distinction because um, I don't think anybody believes that everything's perfect in this world <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and especially right now things are a mess you know and so being able to start um, there with people a lot of times is important the the idea of well you might go to hell when you die um, it's not as compelling as it used to be especially for people that have you know have walked away from the church it's just you know well I can't see that how do I know it's real but we can see, and we can experience, you know, this fallen, corrupted world. And, and if I think we're, you know, paying attention, we can see it in ourselves. And so that's an important distinction. That's saved from what? Yeah. So yeah. saved how? 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 Saved how? Right. Well,
1: in so, in short, uh, Nathan is arguing in his book that we're saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a sort of a five point outline of that. Ooh. He trusted the Father to the very end. He bore our sin and death and was vindicated by God in his resurrection. That's his faith. His faith overcame sin and death and all the powers that corrupt us and bind us. When we trust, point number two, when we trust that he did this for us, we are saved. We are justified. We are reconciled to God. We have been saved when we trust what he did in his faith. That's the past tense. We've been saved. Importantly, when that happens, we receive his spirit. And his spirit inside of us is essentially his sonship faith. This is a really important point, I think, of our message. The spirit we receive is his sonship faith. And we live by that faith, by the faith of Jesus.
2: Right. Yeah. I am just remember recalling the conversations we had, the distinction between the, the faith of the Son of God, not just in the Son of God. And so um, uh-huh. it's important to remember that. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I, I believe Jesus. Yeah, he, he, I believe he was real and it, all these things happen. But we have to actually have that faith come inside of us and begin to, the Spirit of Christ, begin to work his faith into our life so right. that we're beginning to live that same kind of faith out by his Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So faith in the gospel produces the faith of the son. Um, And so Paul in Romans 117 talks about this righteousness of God from faith to faith. So it is this the gospel becomes this vehicle or a seed for sonship faith. From Uh, his faith mm -hmm. to our faith. Right. And faith is a is a nebulous concept that really has no shape. It can apply to lots of things, but with the coming of Christ, it has a specific shape, a fine point, and a definition. And on the basis of that cruciform kind of, you know, I've said cruciform love and resurrection faith, but really the faith comes from the fact that I'm loved. It comes from this idea that death is conquered. And in with those together... Then we are able to have the flavor, brand, style, whatever you want to call it, of faith that is saving. So it has saved, and that God accepts that faith as righteousness apart from our actions, that, that, that that counts as faith, as righteous deeds for God. But it doesn't just count as righteous deeds because God has arbitrarily decided in this iteration of creation this time, let's make them believe something, you know, if there were multiple universes or anything else, you know, and there's another one out there and God's like this time let's make them be happy. You gotta be happy. You know, (laughs) there's some arbitrary quality that God wants that he's just going to decide, you know, or that, Hey, if you don't believe me, you're going to really make me mad and then I'm going to send you to hell. And and God seems sounds kind of petty, um, in that, but, but there is this essential quality, I think, that as at the heart of even the Trinitarian community, that there is this ability to resign oneself into the hands of someone else, and that the, that, that is this implicit trust. Um, now, in our in living in time as we do, that often translates into an expectation of a future action. And so for us, as we enter into this relationship, this ancient, eternal relationship with God, that the qualifier to join that is this ability to resign oneself into the hands of the other with the expectation not to just be a doormat or to be lost into the ether, but with the expectation of receiving oneself back. As Jesus says, the one who loses his life will find it again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I think that's pretty cool, the way, way you just described it, because I'm, I'm kind of seeing that God um, is inviting us, is not inviting us into something that God hasn't already done mm-hmm. or is right. doing, right? right? Yeah. The very nature of God, you know, this Father, Son, Spirit relationship is constantly giving and laying one's lives down for each other, so to speak. It's, it's, uh, this kind of circular pattern and God's inviting us into that. Yeah, He's not just saying, well, you know, you got to bow down and, you know, grovel at my feet. He's right. like, no, look, this is, this is my nature. This is how divine relationship works. Come, come join us. Yeah. <laughs>
0: mm. Right. Yeah. Well, think of what that does. If there is an eternal being out there who created conscious beings, um, we are forever ants in an ant farm. Unless he invites us to become his, to join his fellowship. Now we're children. That's a vast, that's a, that theologically is, is just light years away from every concept, any concept of what a God might be. That there's this, Idea out there that God is this cosmic narcissist who created these little ants to worship him, and that, you know, he obviously is super insecure and he needs that. When we understand God as this eternal community who has no need mm-hmm. of any of us, uh, why did he create this? Except as an overflow of love, uh, just like. Two parents, you know, two people who are very much in love, and they really want a child, not because that child's going to contribute anything to the household, um, but it's an overflow. And so we're we're given that picture in home life, um, and God, I think that the purpose of creation is this overflow of of this community of love, but that community of love is. It's facilitated by an implicit trust. Trust is the best word I have. I mean, an omniscient being can't trust in the sense that it doesn't know what's going to happen. But there's a relational trust, an a, a investment and a divestment that comes through the relational trust. And that is best depicted in time, where we're moving just one direction through time and what is to come is unknown and in that context that trust can be revealed and so Jesus enters time and becomes a full human and casts himself into the void of death Um, and and through that I think has left this indelible mark has built a monument to the inner life of the Trinity that we are invited to join. I don't know, you know, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that you'll see the height of your calling and the greatness of your inheritance. And it's, and you're thinking, you know, I'm thinking as I read it, it's like, Paul, why don't you just tell us, (laughs) you know, but we can't. It's like, he's like, I'm praying that God himself will move into your heart so that you can get an inkling of what's been done for you. Because this is a massive mystery. It's astonishing, startling um, that, that we serve a God who is inviting us into his community and not just a God who has a big magnifying glass and is ready to zap those who don't conform. Mm-hmm. That's
1: living by faith, mm-hmm. which we inherit from the Trinity and from Jesus specifically.
2: Right.
1: We're saved by his faith, which becomes our faith. Living by that faith, dying to sin and self, entrusting ourselves to the Father again and again, we experience resurrection life being worked into our mortal bodies. Thus, we are being saved. What's up? So it's we, an ongoing process. Right. We have been saved. We are also being saved. Right. And in the future, we will be saved. Right. And we haven't touched a lot on that. We We will be saved from the wrath that is to come, biblical phrase, the Mm -hmm. wrath that is to come, and the whole world will be made new. And I think I just want to put a pin on that and say we're going to come back to that because we haven't dealt a lot with that. Mm -hmm. So that's saved from what? Saved how? And today we ask, saved for what? And I think some of the answers are implied in what we've been saying, but, but... Nathan, you're going to argue that we have been saved to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, those are like religious words, right. biblical words. Yeah. And we're going to fill that out today. Sure. And uh, so let's dive into that. Uh, what did you mean by "we are"? Or, or let's 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 lay the background. Acts yeah. two is sure. that a place to start?
0: Maybe. Uh, well, and I think to uh, Alex off camera uh, <laughs> as, as as kind of wisely pushed back and said you know these this language and and you alluded to it kent is uh, is outmoded for us Uh, i mean we live in a society where there are people who are called priests or clerics or whatever there's a clergy class in our society but most people don't encounter them now uh, or at least don't defer to them and and um i was just talking to a friend the other day and about priesthood and what a lot of people don't understand is that the priests weren't a go-between a mediating class between people and God. People could pray to God wherever they were throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so it wasn't like you had to go to the priest and tell him your sins. That the Catholic concept of priesthood ha- has become, um, and, and whether it's intentional or not, a power position in that if you want God, you have to come to me. That wasn't the case in the Old Testament. It, the only the Priesthood role is simply in the giving of offerings to God. Okay, so I just was is the to bring word that up. worship appropriate there? Worship, yes, but we have to say that that worship in our society, especially I mean among evangelicals and mm-hmm. I guess most people who go to church, we see worship as singing songs, mm-hmm. um, and that is just a very small and probably an inaccurate idea that that's probably it's more specifically praise and that was a part i think of what israel did but israel didn't need to be at the temple to do that as a matter of fact the songs of a sense presume that you're not at the temple okay so that you have all these songs that are presuming you're on your way to the temple i mean didn't have to wait till they got to the temple to praise god they could look around and see they had their own history that a a culture of worship as a family is enjoined in deuteronomy 6 that there's very much a lot of what we call worship today singing reading the word those kinds of things israel wouldn't have thought of as worship proper they would have thought of it as praising god as um, thanking him and appreciating him but worship our word worship comes from worth-ship. So what is God worth to us? And sometimes something is only worth what you'll pay for it. And it's not so much that we're saying, I want to buy God, but but this inclination to sacrifice is a desire to ascribe to our deity value. Mm-hmm. To Demonstrate his worth. Right, to, dem- to take something that's a value to us and to give it up it for him. And this is an instinct in pretty much every type of, of religion that I can think of. It's less so in Christianity because a formal offering of a sacrifice has been done away and that Jesus has offered himself. And, and yet we need to retain a component of, of worth-ship. And, and so when I say we're a kingdom of priests, uh, what I'm saying is, is that we are a, a kingdom is, is it presumes an economy. It presumes a, a distribution of roles. OK, and then priests presumes a class of people who are offering sacrifices to God and receiving those sacrifices in the Levitical system The priest would burn certain portions, but he would eat other portions on God's behalf. Now, the reason he had to do that is because God didn't have a body. And so he couldn't, God himself couldn't accept the sacrifices. And all of that was done in symbol. It's a gesture, you know? So if I'm Van Gogh and I cut off my ear and I give it to my girlfriend, that's not for her benefit. She's not like, oh, finally, you know, she was deaf in one ear and now I gave her mine. Right, that that's a gesture. So, if we think of Old Testament worship, it's like cutting off your ear and sending it to God. Right? <laughs> he doesn't have a use for it. He can't eat it. Right? But we're saying this is how much I love you. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. By the way, we don't condone people cutting off their ears for God. Right. Just tear out don't your eyes
0: or cut off your hand, according to Jesus. <laughs> Leave your ear intact, unless it offends you, then stab it out. But anyway, um, there's this. Um, don't do that either, people. <laughs> I'll put this. I'll put an advisory. disclaimer. Don't I'll try it, this at you know, all. I'll make, I'll make this this episode explicit. Right? Uh, uh, yeah. So that there's this gesture, but somebody doesn't benefit from it, uh, and so that's kind of an incomplete concept of worship, in that you're you're making a gesture, but you're not actually giving it over to them. Um, so the concept of a kingdom of priests, it has to do with a shift that's come through Jesus. Like That was the call of Israel, but that call is fulfilled in Christ. So that's where we're going and that we we've been called from a world of disregard for our creator, which Paul says is unrighteous. It's to defraud him. Okay. Um, so disregarding our creator is, is a cosmic crime. Okay. There's something that's, that's gone wrong in that we were, we owe everything to somebody and we give him the finger and walk away. Okay. That's cosmically wrong. Okay. Um, so there's something broken in society. So that's one thing that we need to be safe from as a society that is, um, care is parodying God, I guess would be the word. Um but there's also the society. We also say from this religious system that is symbol and form as opposed to the actual performing of a deed. Okay. So there's ritual that represents a deed, but then there's the performing of the deed in, in the Greek idea. Um, so our word truth, it, it speaks of something that is correct as opposed to false. In the ancient, the ancient idea of truth, the word Aletheia is a negative. It, it starts with a negative particle, ah, right? So it's a negative word. They didn't have the idea of truth. that stood on its own, but that, that truth was the removing of a covering. So there's this idea that there is, uh, an echelon of reality that is real and that there's an echelon that is symbol and simulation. We're this strong indication now, scientifically, that we are in a simulation. I'm not saying exactly what that's like or that nothing that happens here matters. I'm just simply saying that it seems that reality shifts based on whether we're looking at it or not. And that would suggest that, that somebody has, has set this up for our perceptual benefit or digestion. Whether you get that whether you agree with that or not. but all that to say is that maybe the Greeks had it right. The truth is describes the removal of a veil, that the experience of that which is base reality. okay? Um, so now I'm getting way off book, but let, let me let me bring it to the Bible and, and maybe that'll help. So in John 1, uh, G, uh, John says that, uh, The law came from Moses, John 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we understand that, that the law, that the antithesis, if you're a New Testament reader or you're very familiar with this, that there's this idea that the law prescribes behaviors and it defines consequences. Okay? So it's cause and effect, that kind of a thing. Grace is this understanding that were received on a relational merit on, on just the nobility and the goodness of the one doing the receiving so law and grace are somewhat antithetical okay do we get that but but then he goes on and says and truth mm-hmm. right if, so if uh, if John was a, a reformed theologian he would have said the law was given through Moses and grace came through Jesus Christ right. But John's not a Reformed theologian, so he says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's something about on the on reality.
1: Right. The substance of things has, instead of the shadow and symbolic representation, now we have the substance, the reality. Yeah. Right. And,
0: and that is very closely associated. Let me go to John 4. So Jesus juxtaposes Old Testament temple worship again with truth. In John 4, as he tells the woman at the well, hey, the time is coming when uh, you won't worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. All, you know, God's worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. Okay? The, the spirit and truth, those must go together. Why is that? Because now that the spirit inhabits God's people, the things that we give to God's people are received by
1: god okay so this now you're getting into the the worship kingdom of priests holy nation you've come full circle Mm -hmm. we worship god by giving good things to his people right and when and in doing and when we do that god is able to receive it right because yeah. they are his people or because he dwells in them because, because he dwells in, in them. his body right yeah the church is the body of christ right so what was symbol is now reality
0: right yeah so jesus became a human god became a human in jesus and and if you did something for jesus it was doing something for god right so jesus goes to the woman at the well and says could i have a glass of water and she's like you know how dare you and he's saying you don't know who's asking you for water right that that spiritual water is the encounter with God. It is this wonderful privilege of being able to put something in God's hand and stand there while he drinks it. You know, you think about how, uh, when the three visitors came to Abraham, right? And, and, man, he kills the fatty calf. He has this instinctive desire to just cook his best and to stand there and watch him eat it. You know, that, that spiritual water, it's, it's our longing, and, and, Jesus, and so Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, That right? this encounter with God is living water, and he's saying, I'm giving you something. You know, you woman of ill repute who can't even really be accepted by your own Samaritan society, you are being given an opportunity that the prophets and the priests and the kings for long ages would have given their arm for, you're being given an opportunity to put a glass of water in the hand of God. And so Jesus, you know, you're reading the other gospels and he says, "If, if you give just a cup of water to one of my disciples, to those who believe in me, you've done it to me.
1: What about Matthew 25? when you've done right.
0: it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Right. Is that the same idea? Yeah, but those but those promises are predicated on the recipient being a believer. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do good for the lost, but I'm saying is, is that it is in the believer that the spirit dwells, and it is through the believer that God receives the gift.
1: OK, so our worship is our love for our brother or sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. That's our worship to God. Right, because it, like the priests of old, they offered sacrifices to God, and consumed them also on God's behalf. But right now, that was symbol. We have the reality. Yes, we offer good things to our brother and sister; they consume them, mm-hmm. and because God is in them, and the body yeah. is the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ. Therefore, the worship is made uh, complete.
0: Yes, it's not symbol, it's reality. Right. And but beyond that, that predicates remember it's a kingdom of priests. It's not just a collection of priests. And a kingdom presumes an economy, a civic life. And that's one thing that I think we miss when we see the church as just a civic club or a, you know, a, a conglomeration of people or an institution the authors of the New Testament saw it very much as an alternative nation under the King Jesus. And, and as a nation, we have every component that any political society would have. And one of those things is an economy. So God, you know, we started in a garden in Genesis two, but when we get to revelation 21, we're in a city you know, there's something about civilization that facilitates this union and this sharing. So the shared labor and the, you know, that people have in different roles that the the, contrib- the contributing of that becomes the vehicle through which people give and receive as priests but priesthood becomes the basis, of giving and receiving in the society. So if I'm giving to you, if I'm fulfilling my role in our nation, if, if the church is the nation, if I'm fulfilling my role in our nation and you don't, should I pull back on what I'm doing because you're not reciprocating? Well, in society, that's what happens, right? If it's a marriage, if it's anything that we're always asking, Am I, you know, am I giving more than other people? And, and we're bad uh, monitors of that because we always think we're giving more than other people. But what happens is, is that the economy begins to grind down as each person contributes less commensurate to what they think somebody else has given. Okay. Or people become greedy and they take more if they have power, they, or they have the ability to do so and things become unjust and unfair. And, but if we look at Isaiah five, Isaiah is saying that the whole purpose of all of this is to produce justice, that society is here to produce justice, that that's the grapes that God's looking for off of his vineyard. Okay. But if society becomes the vehicle through which, um, there's inequity, Mm -hmm. then that's the very opposite thing that it's supposed to do. But isn't that what always happens in every society? But what if every person is contributing to society as worship to God? Now, the economy remains robust and fair. Okay, so Paul, he didn't do away with the master-slave relationship. I know he's critiqued for that. But he does say, you slaves work for your masters as what? to the Lord. Right? It was a worship. Dig that ditch for Jesus, man. I'm telling you, that ditch is going to get dug. But to the master, he says what? He says, now, remember, you have a master in heaven. And so he's doing it on Christ's behalf as well. So these household instructions begin to uh, demonstrate what this holy nation is supposed to be like, or this kingdom of priests, and holy nation is what we're getting to. So, The way we treat one another is our worship. And because it's worship, the way we treat one another is going to be vastly different. Our corporate life. That's what we're saved for is to become, as Jesus says, the city on a hill. Because the call of Israel in Exodus 19 is that, and by Israel, I simply mean God's people of faith. That's what Paul meant when he said it. In the book of John, John, you're you're
1: about to get to the background of the
0: phrase, the kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. Right, Exodus 19. Now they're at the mountain. They've been pulled out of Egypt, so they've been saved. Okay, the the lamb has been slain, and the uh, they've traveled through the waters of baptism, and you know, so all of this is across the Red Sea. Right. So now here they are. Right. So that, but the whole point, you know, when Moses meets God on the mountain with the burning bush, the whole point isn't set my people free because they're sad. It's set them free and bring them here, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, it's the bring them here that we need to get to. I I think that we think salvation is about just getting me over my feelings of shame and my fear of death. And I can go on and live a life for myself. It seems So we miss this idea that we are saved to participate in a community of worship. And by worship, I mean giving to God through others. Okay, but now Exodus 19. Right, Exodus God, God 19. brings them out, and he says, mm-hmm. what? Right, he says, uh, you know, you've seen how I've done it. That, uh, let me bring it up, that, you know, on eagle's wings, I brought you here, right? And so that you might be before me um, in Exodus 19.5. It says, now, if you truly obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, These are the words you just speak. So, uh, But then when we get to Romans 12, because in Christ, these figures that were in Israel weren't done away. They're fulfilled, right? They're brought to their reality. So when we read Romans 12, 1, therefore, I urge you to offer your bodies a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy, okay? Holy and pleasing to God. What is God's mercy that he's talking about? Well, in Romans 11, he's saying the Gentiles are now fully included in Israel. Israel as in the called of God, okay? And he says, because you've been included there, now do what god's people do and that is offer sacrifice what's the sacrifice my body well we read this we take it out of context we cross stitch it on a pillow and then we go privately and say lord here's my body if you want to send me to the mission field or whatever i'm here that's not what he means he begins to tell us in in verse three what that is how do we give our body a living sacrifice and and he says uh, well let's get down to four he says for just as Each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have gifts, have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according, in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. So it seems to me that he's saying, here is this economy of worship. How do I offer my body a living sacrifice? I give my body to his body. The church. Right. And, and so there's it. And that saying is it it almost has sexual connotations. And yet what did, uh, what was the hope for human society back in Genesis two, right? In marriage we become one flesh, but when you get to Malachi two, we are one flesh through a shared spirit what if the spirit becomes commonplace in all of God's people can we not through christ become one flesh in the sense that if you hurt i hurt and vice versa that i'm that christ in me is pleasuring christ in you in the sense that encouragement or service and that christ in you is pleasuring christ in me and that you're he is receiving that to the joy of my heart, okay? And so there is this union that comes to this kingdom of priests. I know it kind of took that the next step, but but that's the call. And and so there is no such thing as this individual Christian devotion. It is a corporate thing by design. And and when we get to that, then in verse two, so remember we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If we become this economy that is predicated on worship, we as a group are distinct. Nobody's like us. A holy nation, a distinct nation. That's it. A holy nation. One and
1: only kind of nation.
0: Right. So from the outside, as people are looking in, they're seeing this city on a hill. They're seeing people who take care of each other. They see this leveling of, of the social strata as the master is stooping to wash the feet of his slave. Talk about shocking. In a very stratified society as Rome was, this is shocking. That's scandalous. Because Paul's
1: instructions to masters and slaves, they were instructions to Christian masters and Christian slaves. Right. They were instructions
0: to the church. Right. Because Paul how to operate
1: have, with one another.
0: Right. Paul didn't have a hope that the old structures would would tumble from without. He had a hope that that the gospel would begin to infiltrate the hearts of God's people to the point that these systems would be overturned from within. So when he finally gets to Philemon and and he tells Philemon, your slave Onesimus is your brother, that's a massive shift, right? That's a change in everything. When James says, let the poor rejoice in their lofty estate and let the poor, I mean, let the wealthy rejoice that they have been brought low that's a massive shift that is a holy nation that's what we're called to be not some sort of activism to call the fallen structures of this world to be to perform justly i mean that's fine if we can do it but how about we demonstrate justice from within as we proclaim the gospel as we begin to lift up the the poor and the downtrodden as the master who has the call has the gift of service serves the slave who has the the gift of leadership. Man, now everything's upside down and backwards, but the world looks on and they and they scratch their heads and they say, this is foolishness, but it works. And that's what Romans 12.2 is saying. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? Isn't it hierarchy? Isn't it control and power, right? Isn't it entitlement and division. He says, don't conform to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now we get out and we say, well, that means you got to read the Bible a lot. Well, that's fine. Read the Bible, but that's not going to change your mind, right? You're going to read the Bible and you're going to come away with the same worldly mentality sometimes. Okay. He says, renew your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve. So this is, these two words are translating one word in Greek that means to prove through testing. It comes from metallurgy. Okay. So Let's just say, then you will be able to prove to testing what God, through testing what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Paul is saying that when we set out to be a kingdom of priests, we will demonstrate and we will discover that God's plan for society is good and pleasing and perfect. Who's it pleasing to? Well, the worship is pleasing to God in Romans 12.1. Okay. Offer this worship as pleasing to God. Who? is God's will supposed to please? Well, it could please Him, but it's His will. That, that seems kind of self-referential and narcissistic and maybe even unnecessary to say. Could I suggest to you that it's pleasing to the people out there, that every person out there has this sense that the world should be fair and that people should be cared for and that the downtrodden should be lifted up, that everybody has that sense, but we're not living it out because we don't trust our fellow man, right? But if God says, well, put it to my account, okay? Now we have a society that are, that are claiming things that are ridiculous, and yet and they're doing things that are completely counterintuitive, but the application of that changed mind is down later in chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, If we think that just means our fellow believer, man, that's not that hard to do or our friends. But if it's someone who hates us, someone who's been persecuting us, who's been trying to kill us and something bad happens to them and we reject the Schadenfreude and we go to them and we grieve. You know, and he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Something good happens to our enemy and and we come to the party and we bring a gift, you know, that we become these people who are so counterintuitive and the only way that this sort of a life is demonstrated as right is in the practice of it. And, and so it will get to in chapter 13 where he says, you know, submit to the authorities and he's saying, submit as a group. Don't be seen as that group of people who are so defiant and disruptive. Okay. That anybody can do that. Any small little tribe will do that. But if we become a tribe of people who are constantly contributing to the flourishing of those around, that's weird. Okay. And, and so he talks about being an authority and he says, if you do that, you will receive praise from the same. Now a cop's not going to pull you over and thank you for going 55 and a 55. But if the church is seen as this society of mercy and love within its walls and that is spilling over, mm mm-hmm. I believe the civic authorities will say, I don't like them, but I can't argue with the result.
1: Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Right. So Jesus gave a Sermon on the Mount and he said at the beginning of it that his vision would be that we would so um, we would be so transformed that people on the outside would look in and say,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's a holy your nation. God is great. Right. So kingdom of priests is this economy that's predicated on worship. Holy nation is this culture, this society that is so counterintuitive that the world stops and glorifies God and hopefully joins them at some point.
1: So Nathan, you've covered uh, some of the background and some of the explanation for, um, kingdom of priests and holy nation. Um, in your book you talk about Christ as uh, the messiah mm-hmm. Jesus as the Christ which is messiah anointed one and how he yeah. combines this the kingly and the priestly roles mm-hmm. and i think that's important for you to give us some background on to ha- help us understand what it means for us to follow Christ or to be christians
0: yeah yeah so and and i think it's 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 a good corrective just in general for society. So throughout Israel's history, there's this genius division of powers. If you were of Levi, you could be a priest. And if you're of Judah, you can be a king. And those aren't supposed to bleed into each other. The only time that someone in political authority was also in religious authority that I can think of in scripture is Samuel, the prophet, who was prophet, priest, and judge. And so he is he's very much a type of Christ, like as... You know, in Luke in Luke 2, 52, he says, and so, you know, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Um, in first Samuel two, we're told and Samuel grew in wisdom and stature, you know, mm-hmm. and and the word of the Lord came to him. And so there's this very similar thing between Samuel and Jesus uh, in their personhood. Samuel is is of the tribe of uh, Benjamin, I believe, but so he's not, he's not really supposed to be off. Op- uh, working as a priest, but he's adopted by Eli. And so there's this way around this division of powers, but that's the only time that happens. And so even a somewhat righteous king, uh, I think Uzziah, tried to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice and is punished with leprosy or whatever, right? Uh, that there's very much a, hey, the king doesn't come over here and the priest won't go over there. And that's important, a separation of powers, because... Religious devotion, actual love for God must never be compelled at the end of a sword. And any time we've seen that happen, there has been untold suffering and abuse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any, you know, Sharia law, ISIS comes to mind, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. you know, offer your devotion to Allah or I'll cut your head off. Mm-hmm. Now, and we have Christian religious wars uh, in Europe. So they, uh, yeah. Sure, There's and those but but what happened, right? There was a marrying of political power and religious devotion. You have these people who claim to be priests and they are ordering a military campaign. Mm -hmm. And you see the, the disease and the sickness of that, right? But Jesus in John 17, Jesus says, I'm going to consecrate myself so that they can be consecrated. Jesus isn't an earthly power. He is king over all, but he is also priest. And he is that because he reigns in heaven and he ministers in heaven. So the anointed one, we, we should emphasize the word one, right? Messiah means anointed one. And, and just naturally in English, we tend to emphasize that first word anointed, right? But there were a lot of anointed ones in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the only anointed one. He's the one with king and priest anointing. And in, so in Zechariah 6, we have Zechariah is commanded to make this crown for the high priest who at the time was named Joshua. Uh, if you didn't already know, the word Jesus is anglicized from the Greek Jesus. That's where we get Jesus, Iesus. And the Greek Jesus was a Hellenized version of the Aramaic Yeshua. And Yeshua is the Aramaic or the uh, first century Hebrew for Joshua, or or at least we call it Joshua. Yeshua probably was always the thing. So this guy named Yeshua, or Jesus, um, is serving as a high priest in Zechariah's day. And Zechariah is told, take silver and gold from the exiles. Heldai, Tobijah, Jedediah, or whoever it is, who have arrived from Babylon, go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua. So here's this two um, material crown. It's a double crown, if you will, right? And then he says, take it and put it on the head of a priest. Okay, Priests don't wear crowns. Kings wear crowns. So he's saying, put, put this, this double crown on the head of a priest. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name, who has the name of the branch. Who's that, I wonder, right? And that branch will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. That the temple of the Lord is not going to be a located temple, but a branched out temple. Do we see that? He's going to branch out and build the temple. Now, what do kings do? They conquer, they branch out. What do priests do? Minister in the temple. Here, he's saying, here's a priest with a crown on his head who will conquer, and in his conquest, will build a temple that will branch out. He will branch out and build a temple. And his and, name is And Joshua. his name is Yeshua. Yeshua. Yesus, this is prophetic Jesus, act, act Right. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. God's breaking down that partition that he built. Okay? okay. And, and there will be harmony between the two, priest, king, The crown will be given to Heldai. Now, he put it on Joshua as a symbolic moment, but he didn't leave it on his head. Mm -hmm. The crown will be given to those same guys and and as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Let's hang it up for the guy who's coming. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And those who are far away, that's us. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We'll come. We'll help to build the temple of the Lord.
1: Which is the body of Christ. Hallelujah, right? The body of Christ, the church, is the temple of the
0: Lord. And so you get to Ephesians 2 right? And um, and Paul says, for he himself is our peace. He's made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his body and his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to, his purpose, what's the purpose of salvation? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but what Citizens, citizens, right? Fellow citizens. This isn't a social club. This is a kingdom and we are citizens in it with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now get this, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. How do we, how do we perform the role of that temple? Ephesians 3 I bow my knee to the father I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power with all of God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Why is it that we must be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Because love has no meaning apart from society, apart from relationship, apart from connection. This idea that, oh, I'm love embodied and all that is a stupid notion that if there is no act, there is nothing transferred from one person to another, there is no love. It's nonsensical. And, and, and so it, he wants us to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may f- be filled to what? All the fullness of God. Right. <laughs> so this temple, God's moving in. How is he moving in? Through his love. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a powerful, powerful doctrine. But that's what we're saved for. You know? That's the emphasis in the epistles. It's not. To make the world a better place, that is a tangent. That's a that's a side benefit. Ultimately, God's going to make the world a better place. But we're going to demonstrate that better world as we become this As we love one economy. another. Yeah. They will know you are my
1: disciples if you love one another, Jesus said. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not an individualistic vision of what we're saved for. It's a
2: community vision of what we're saved yeah. for. That, that's interesting, that individualistic vision. I was just reading um, uh, a blog and somebody's talking about how uh, we've come to the end, especially in America, the church has come to the end of the purpose-driven life, mm-hmm. which is very much that vision of, you know, God has a plan for you, um, which he does. He does have a right. plan for you, but it's like, well, each person's going to have this little unique thing for their life that they're going to do and um, and somehow that's separate from everything else that God's doing within every every other believer around Mm -hmm. us but you know we don't typically have this contextual uh, of together we're all becoming something as one
0: yeah yeah and as individuals going back we had to be set free from power structures so that we could become a new society of free individuals who are throwing their freedom to each other, you know, who are giving each other freedom, who are using their freedom to serve. Peter says, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but use it to serve others. Mm. So there is this, we must insist, as Bonhoeffer did, Bonhoeffer said that the one who cannot uh, be away from, or the one who cannot be alone, let him fear community and the one who cannot be in community, let him fear being alone. That there is this requirement that every person has his own faith and is responsible to his own faith, which is why Paul says, use your gift according to the faith which has been distributed to everybody. That the drive to prophesy or to teach or to serve or to work in kids ministry or whatever it is, may never be compelled and we must never offer over our freedom, but it has to be moved from within. And we must retain that motive and each of us must retain that motive within ourselves, and we must attempt to protect that motive in other people by, by giving not them the freedom, controlling them or manipulating them. Right. And then it becomes the holy nation because anybody can carry out a society of control with the right charismatic leader and the right structures and the conformity and all of that, you can create a cult. Right? Any human can put together a cult, but only God can be at the center of the kingdom of priests and the holy nation. Mm. And so, and this
2: is what we've been saved for. Absolutely. Mm.
1: Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Email us your questions to discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.